Welcome, anxious humans. I'm Stacey Sorgen, and this is the Anxious Entrepreneurs Podcast. If you are a warrior, an overthinker, someone who plans for every option and iteration of life, you are in the right place. In each episode, we'll explore what makes us unique, weird, and awesome, and how it might be exactly what helps us succeed as entrepreneurs. What if our so-called flaw is actually a tremendous gift and attribute? Let's dig deeper. It's nice to meet you. Hello, anxious entrepreneurs. I'm so sorry for the unannounced break that I ended up taking. But, uh, you know, if you are an entrepreneur who is just coming to the end of quarantine life and you're like navigating all the different things that we need to do in order to move forward, you might be with me in a place of a bit of overwhelm. So I took a break. I had to step back. I wanted to reevaluate. Is this something that I want to do? And the answer was a big old hell yes. So I'm very excited to be moving forward with the podcast. And I feel really invigorated coming back and having the opportunity to speak to such incredible people. You are going to see some really fantastic people and hear from some amazing people on the podcast. So I hope that you'll stay tuned. Keep coming back. Keep listening. Oh my gosh. Today, to start things off, I am here with and freaking out a little bit about being here with Steph Godreau. Oh my gosh, if you don't know who Steph is, please look her up online. Look her up online. Do yourself a favor. Okay, stephgaudreau.com. But Steph Gaudreau, NTP, is a nutritional therapy, intuitive eating, and strength training expert helping women who lift weights fuel themselves better so they get stronger, increase their energy, and perform better in the gym. In her best-selling book, The Core Four, she details a four-pillar approach to getting stronger, embracing your body, and owning your power. Steph is trained in biology and human physiology and is a nutritional therapy practitioner, certified intuitive eating counselor, and USA weightlifting sports performance coach. She's got it all. Her weekly podcast, the Listen to Your Body podcast, has over 3.7 million downloads. She's an international speaker that has been featured in Outside, Mind Body Green, Self, and ESPN Radio. You are in for an amazing conversation, and I hope that you'll stay tuned. Let's dive in with Steph Godreau. Steph, I am so glad that you're here with us today, and I can't wait to dig a little bit deeper into who you are, what you do, and why you do it. I'd love if you'd introduce yourself a little bit more and tell us about your history. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay. Where to begin? Let's see. I am a former high school science teacher turned food blogger, now turned strength nutrition coach online, and primarily what I help women do. These are women who lift weights. I help them learn how to fuel themselves so that they get stronger, have more energy and perform better in and out of the gym and also unapologetically take up space. 
So that's kind of the gist of what I do. Um, I call myself kind of a strength nutrition coach, but really what I'm hoping to do in the world is marry the idea that we cannot bring our diet culture ways into lifting weights, like in terms of how we eat and our relationship to exercise and also bring in the food psychology aspect, intuitive eating to some degree so that when we're lifting weights and doing our thing and getting stronger and we want to build muscle, we're doing it in a, a healthy way. And I, I use healthy in air quotes here because that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But nevertheless, um, it's an interesting space to occupy and I really love what I do. So on a daily basis, I one-on-one coach, I run group programs, I am a podcaster, I have a couple of books. So I do a little bit of everything. I love it. Thank you for bringing all of your genius here today. I love your books. Uh, Would you mind dropping the titles of those? Yeah. So my most recent book that came out in 2019 is called The Core 4, Embrace Your Body, Own Your Power. It's about what I call the four pillars of health. And it's really kind of a holistic way to look at getting stronger without fixating on making our bodies smaller. That's how I would sum it up. Such a good book. Pick it up. Put it in your cart right now. <laughs> I love it. Can you be my hype person all the time? Yes, always. <laughs> Absolutely. And then um, can you tell us a little bit about your podcast, which I'm so excited about? And yeah. I'm actually going to bring up a recent episode, if you don't yeah. mind, because it's so good. Sure. Yeah. I've been podcasting since 2015. So recently celebrated six years of podcasting. Currently, the name of the podcast is the Listen to Your Body podcast. Um, and I have 342 episodes in the archives. So if you are listening to this podcast and you're like, yes, I want to dig into more, I mean, you name it, strength, body image, nutrition, all of that, intuitive eating, like go dive in. There's plenty there to listen to. <laughs> Absolutely. And just in case you may know it by its previous name, this was previously the Harder to Kill podcast. Right? Yeah, Harder to Kill Radio. Okay. So mm-hmm. you'd be able to find it by searching. I tried it. You can search both things mm-hmm. and Steph's podcast pops up for you. So go listen. Great thing to listen to while you're out for a nice little walk or out with your dogs or you know getting ready for the day. But I have a little question for you, Steph, about... Yeah. I saw in your IG story today, you were talking about fitness trackers, Yep, um, which is fascinating. And mm-hmm. I wanted to know a little bit about your thoughts about fitness trackers. Yeah. I, it's so interesting because, okay, to kind of set the stage, I came from a mountain bike racing and triathlon background previous to really settling into doing strength training as my primary mode of training. So that was about 10 years ago when I made the switch. It was actually kind of 2011. So summer of 2011, when I switched from doing endurance type training to really switching to lifting weights. And then about four years ago, I also started doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I do currently jiu-jitsu and lift weights. And it's really interesting because I definitely had a difficult relationship with food and exercise, like many people do. And for me using a, at the time, like a heart rate monitor tracker type situation, if you can imagine like a polar heart rate monitor or a Garmin or something like that, 
whenever I would use that, it was it was like because first of all, to see the numbers in front of me as I was doing the activity was always like you're not going hard enough. You need to go harder, push more, like you're not going to get the benefit, you're slacking off. Like there was a very negative relationship with that kind of a fitness tracker at that time. I took a 10-year break from <laughs> really using any kind of tracker <laughs> fitness tracker. And I'm here to tell you that you can definitely make gains in your strength. You can build muscle, you can acquire skills, you can love exercise without ever tracking anything. Yeah. Because I did it for 10 years. I competed. I didn't compete. Like it's not a requirement. And I will also say that I brought one back into my life a few months ago because I was curious about some other kinds of data and getting a sense of what that data is like for me. Hmm. I don't have a specific answer as to whether or not this is a quote, good or bad thing for people. And I think it's far more nuanced than that. Yeah. But I have heard the discussion in pockets around the internet um, lately about whether or not a fitness, a wearable fitness tracker is diet is part of diet culture. And I think it comes down to a few things. First, your relationship with that thing. So do you tend to have an all or nothing type of mindset or an all or nothing set of beliefs with that tracker? I'll give you an example. One of my clients was using a um, Fitbit. And at first, the Fitbit was really motivating for her because she wanted to get that 10,000 steps a day. But over time, what started to happen was the Fitbit became sort of this all or nothing thing where it was like, if part of the day went by and she thought, there's no way I can get 10,000 steps today... What happened was that rigid thinking, that very binary thinking took over and she would not do anything else. She'd be like, well, I can't make 10K steps, so why bother? And so that was one of the things that we realized through working together, coming to her own conclusion after we collaborated on kind of asking some questions and digging deeper. She said, you know, I want to put it away for a while and put it in a drawer and see what happens. And then eventually she came back to it when... She gained some more flexibility in her thinking about what the purpose of using this device was. Uh, Another thing that I'll say is that for me, personal uh, story, I'm interested in heart rate variability as it relates to the other sensations that my body gives me about how recovered I am, how ready I am for training, how rested I feel. Right. So I took 10 years to really develop a deeper relationship with what are the signs that my body sends me that I feel ready to train. I feel ready to exercise. I feel tired today. I feel recovered. I don't think all of that can be... I mean, those things can't all be displayed on an app or by some kind of wearable fitness tracker. I was really interested though in in HRV. I don't think most people have a negative relationship with something like heart rate variability. Whereas if we think about the scale and weighing yourself as a tool of diet culture, that is far more difficult for a lot of people. The scale is like, you know, has the power to ruin your day, to make you engage in unhealthy behaviors, to help, you know, to is for a lot of people, how we judge our worth. And so 
you know, that was one of my things too, is like, what, it, what kind of data am I collecting with this? And I like this particular one. Uh, there's tons of different ones because I, there's no watch face. I can't see, you know, as I'm doing my activity, I can't actually see what it's telling me until I yeah. go back later on. So I think it's a very individual case by case basis. And I, in the episode, I presented some questions to kind of ask yourself about your relationship with a fitness tracker and looking at it a little bit more objectively. So the short answer is, uh, is it diet culture? I'm not sure still. Um, I think it depends on your re- how you relate to using that tool, just like anything else. Is my fitness pal part of diet culture? Probably, in my opinion, a lot more than yeah, with you I'm than with some you. right than something like uh, a tool that tells me my heart rate variability or how much I slept. But I also know that for some people, that amount of data, that kind of data, isn't helpful anymore. And so, can you you know work on your healthy habits? Can you engage in fitness in a way that's really joyful and fun and it is a benefit to your health without all of this mm-hmm. information? Of course, it's not a requirement. And I think that's oh, a, a question to ask yourself. All super good points. Glad that you brought so much of that up. And I want to say that I use a, a tracker, like I have an Apple watch, but I think that some of the things that I use this for are tracking the amount of sleep because <laughs> you know how much sleep we have really dep- changes our mood throughout the day how we approach things. And I have this really wise, amazing client who says, I never trust my brain and anything it tells me if I've slept any less than six hours. So just like good things to know about yourself, right? Like tracking your sleep, seeing how recovered you actually are, um, taking a look at how much how many moments of movement you get. But I I agree, if you get really stuck on those numbers, if you're really data-driven and you're really in that binary place where you're like all or nothing, it becomes really difficult. So yeah, a tracker where you can't see any of the data as you're moving throughout the day could be really beneficial. Mm -hmm. I'll also throw in on the flip side that if you're a person who suffers from generalized anxiety disorder, like myself, one of these trackers could provide a really great means of biofeedback. Um, It's got a breathe option that allows you to breathe. You can also take a look at your um, current heart rate Mm -hmm. and see if you can bring that down a bit using your breathing and some meditation. So I do use it for lots of different things. Um, Tracking like, you know, calories burned is not one of them. (laughs) Definitely not one of them, but Mm -hmm. all really, really good uh, input on fitness trackers. Thanks for sharing. Sure. I'm kind of curious how you went from being a teacher to doing all that you're doing now. And, you know, this is called the anxious entrepreneur. So Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of curious if at that crossroads or whatever you came to in your life, when you made this jump to do something different, can you tell us a little bit about what that felt like and what was going through your head? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Terrifying is probably the way to sum it up. I will say that, um, being anxious and being a worrier has always been kind of a companion in my life um, to some degree. And I think, you know, it's normal to have those feelings and emotions and states of being. Um, And 
it all that exists on a spectrum. I don't have a sense clearly about like how severe that is for me. Um, all I know is that it, it has been my companion and sometimes depending on my ability to sort of manage slash cope with it, it can be more or less present um, or more or less effective affecting me. But when I was leaving the the classrooms, I had taught for 12 years. Um, it was like going to be my career. I had an advanced degree. I was leading a <laughs> I was leading a pretty big project at my school. And um, circumstances changed, and I switched schools. And around this time in my life, a lot of stuff was happening. So I changed schools, hoping that I would find the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Um, spoiler: That's not what happened. <laughs> um, I was having uh, trouble in my marriage, which eventually ended. I was going through a period of really questioning myself. I was going through this period of time where, again, I had I was sort of like leaving the endurance sports world behind, something I had done for almost a decade. So, you know, I'm talking about like well-established, like this is how I kind of define my life and who I am yeah. in my life. And so it became apparent to me in kind of 2011 that I was not happy with a lot of things. It was like a lot of upheaval and change in my life. And slowly but surely, I decided, okay, I need to change this. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to happen. And I started to put some pieces in motion to be able to eventually change what I was doing in terms of my career. I took my blog that I was just kind of doing for me and personally, and I decided to really start working on it in my free time on the weekend. I was... Uh, eventually, so about a year and a half later, when I was sort of more certain I was going to change <laughs> careers and actually become an entrepreneur, I took a you know an entrepreneur course online. And I mean, that sounds like normal now. I feel like like oh, you just do this thing. But at the time, you know, this is like eight years ago. The online business world was, I would say, much more fledgling than it is now. Yeah, and I you know I got some advanced certifications like. I, I tried my best to prepare myself, but I was still really scared. And so the anxiety that kind of kept nagging at me were, were things like, what are people going to think about you? You're leaving this, you know, stable job. Again, I'm using air quotes, right? Stable job. It's always how I had been raised by my parents, right? You find a job that's stable, is paying you, and you stay there. Which is really interesting because I was really raised by my mom's side of my family. It was very much in that mindset. My father's side of the family is more entrepreneurial. Like my grand, my great grandfather had has some patents. Like my grandfather owned a business. I didn't. I wasn't really raised by that side of my family. So what did I know? I knew this narrative of like stay stable, stay safe, put your time in. And so I really was facing this crisis of like, I'm going to be leaving this job that I've invested the last 12 years in. It's a stable job, relatively speaking, in terms of my credentials to teach science. I had like the best possible combination of credentials, you know, like I could pretty much get a job anywhere. And I had all of that playing in my mind. Like, what are people going to think about me? Are they going to support me? Are they going to think I've lost it? Like, am I going to be able to do this? 
And of course, all of that is that like future thinking. And it really took the help of a coach. It took the support of my now husband. It took the support of people around me. My family turned out to be really supportive. I think to this day, my mom still doesn't really understand how I make money like <laughs> in my job because that's not something that she's used to seeing. But my family is really supportive. And um, you know, a lot of the, the things that I feared the most didn't happen. But it was very it was very anxiety inducing. It was very scary. It was a little bit exciting too. Um, you know, after after I left my job, so I tried to be. I am a pretty risk averse person, um, and so I tried to set up some things as well to kind of like reduce that sense of overwhelm and anxiety. Where uh, I asked for a leave of absence from my job for a year, so I had to write a, di- a letter to the school district. And then you just kind of give it to them and you hope that at their meeting, they're like, yeah, okay, you're, you're good to go for a year. So I wrote a letter. I was granted a year leave of absence, which I felt was really lucky because my other option would have been to quit outright. And gosh, that felt like so scary. So I feel really fortunate that looking back, I was able to kind of meet my level of risk aversion through some of the things that happened. This is so relatable. Yeah. I'm laughing over here because a very similar trajectory, but I want to hear a little bit more about like, how did that year go and how did you use it to get yourself? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because we always say like leap in the net appears, like there's all these like cute little (laughs) sayings and you're like, yeah, that sounds great for everybody else, but that's not how it's going to work for me. And so end of June came or beginning of June came around. I was done for the year. I had big plans. I was moving to Scotland to be with my then fiance, now husband. Uh, and I was going to stay for three or four months, which I did. Uh, I, yeah, I, you know, found a temporary uh, caretaker for my cat. You know, I basically like put my life here on hold and I moved to Scotland so that I could be with Z. And in that time, basically my mindset was, okay, sink or swim, sink or swim. You've been given this amazing gift to like leave for a year and potentially come back if you need to, if it all is spectacularly going to blow up in your face, you, you can go back to what you were doing, which again, I felt very fortunate to have that option, but it really gave me the time to go full steam ahead on taking my blog and making it like a legit website and a business. I wasn't making any money at it when I quit. So, or when I left the, you know, for my leave of absence. So it was like full speed ahead with all of that. And it also gave me the space to write my first book, which was the digital book. It gave me the space to travel. It gave me the space to try some new partnerships and to network with people. It gave me the space to eventually accept a book deal when I got back to the States uh, three or four months later. And that was kind of the first year. It was a lot of things kind of clicked into place. And so June then of 2014, (laughs) I had to decide, you know, I had to actually then make the official break from work from my my day job. Right. And so (laughs) I thought, gosh, you know, this last year has gone really well. I mean, it went better than I could ever have imagined. I was starting to make an income. 
and all that stuff. And I remember very, very clearly, I remember exactly like the post office a few streets away. I had the letter in my hand of I'm formally resigning from the district. This has been, you know, thank you so much for granting me this opportunity. It was very like kind and and it wasn't like F you guys, I'm gone. Um, because <laughs> I thought never burn a bridge when it comes to right? that. But I remember taking the letter and going to the mailbox. And just thinking like my hand, it was like a movie, you know, my hand like paused over the slot of the mailbox thinking like, if I let this go, this is like a, this is a big decision in my life. And I let it, I let the letter go into the mailbox and here we are. And it's, you know, 70 years later and somehow (laughs) by my own, I don't know, grit and, and persistence and stubbornness and yes, some really fortunate things clicking into place in my life, I'm still able to do this. And it was very, very terrifying though at that time, because you think, what if the last year was just a fluke? You know? Yeah. Um, So that was part of that. Yeah. As entrepreneurs, I think we're constantly thinking that. And and one of the next questions that I had for you kind of ties into this is it sounds like when you first began diving into all of this, you were like in Scotland, like you were, you were away. Right. Mm -hmm. So what did it feel like for you to being, to try to come up into this community or this field when you're kind of on an Island, you know, and like (laughs) you said, um, the internet and websites and all of that, the communities are not what they are right now. So what Mm -hmm. did it feel like to try to build all this from the ground up from Scotland. Mm-hmm. And did you, as you came back to the US and you settled into this, you dropped that letter and you're like, this is what I'm doing. Did you feel imposter syndrome or anything that you would, I, I know imposter syndrome is used a lot, but did you feel yeah. anxious about fitting into the community? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for the most part, I felt like I had done a lot of the work of developing relationships in the community that I was serving prior to even going full-time with becoming a a self-employed business person online. And so it wasn't like, okay, I'm leaving. Now I have to figure out how to get get in, like, you know, get a foothold in this community or build respect in this community. I had already been doing that for a couple of years. So when I left, I didn't feel like even though I was three five thousand, I'm trying to remember how many thousands of miles away is like five thousand miles from San Diego to to Scotland. I didn't feel like I was isolated in this sense any more than I am now working online. Yeah. You know, most of the people that I know uh, are all over the world. You know, people I've I've met through my business, through my community that has grown up around this business that I have, my clients, although I do have some clients here in San Diego, um, most of my interaction with people like yourself has all been virtual. And so to me, that felt very normal and natural. And I didn't have to worry about trying to like all of a sudden establish myself. And I feel like that's a really important point of growing something that people don't talk about enough is having developing real relationships with people. Maybe you don't meet them in person, but like you're making an effort. And I have to say time and time and time again, I get these 
<laughs> I get these emails from people who are just like, oh, can you do this for me and like do this and post that? And I'm like, I don't know you from a hole in the wall. You know, it's different if we have a we have a real rapport, we have a relationship. And I'll remember a story where one of my now dear friends, Mel Julwan, who was a, running a, a food website at the time, I just really loved her stuff. And I would comment on her blog. And it wasn't like, well, I'm going to try to get Mel's attention so that someday she'll give me an opportunity. It was really just, I got to interact with her. We had things in common. And eventually, we really did become friends in, in, and then met in real life and all this amazing stuff. So I think that for me, that is something that's so important is relationship and trying to establish some kind of rapport. And because I was already doing that in the community when I went full-time, even though I was on an island 5,000 miles away from home, <laughs> it wasn't, it didn't, you know, it didn't, it wasn't an obstacle for me. So. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking <clears throat> about, I, I'm just curious if you, have you ever worked at like a big box gym or have you ever worked at a gym where you were like, pitted against other fitness professionals? Have you ever been in that sort of um, competitive environment? Not in an in-person way, but I will say in my sort of height of my food blogging, mm -hmm. there was definitely competition mm -hmm. amongst some of the bigger food bloggers kind of in my niche. And it yeah. felt really like one up you know, just got to one up that person. It felt really scarcity driven and, and not good. And so I don't have that experience necessarily with an in-person situation, like being in a gym uh, and being a trainer, for example, but I definitely feel like that was more common when I was food blogging. Nowadays, I feel different about that. I feel like there are people who do similar things to me, but nobody is me. Oh, and to your point about imposter syndrome, every damn day, <laughs> every damn day for the last eight years. Uh, Ooh, sometimes I'm glad it, I'm not alone. <laughs> you know, sometimes it sometimes it's more intense than others. Mm -hmm. Look, here's the thing. Um, I was trained in biology and human physiology. I became a teacher. I have you know, like done certifications in nutrition, like year long things. I mean, not, not a weekend. Um, I'm a strength coach. I've been coaching in and out of gyms for the last uh, five to 10 years. I mean, the whole nine yards, I have experience that has to do with life and working with people. I know I'm qualified to do what I do. And I understand where this comes from, but in the nutrition space, it's often a thing of like, First of all, it's a highly unregulated industry. And so I understand like there are some people online talking about some wild stuff. <laughs> it's wild. I wish you all could just see Steph's eyes and mm -hmm. how big they got as she just said wild. It's and yes, wild. It's wild. It's outlandish. It's harmful. Yes. It's okay. I understand that. And at the same time, and this is no 
no shade to my registered dietitian friends because they are very they have a very important role and i understand clearly like what my lane is i'm not a registered dietitian i can't provide things like medical nutrition therapy very clear on that and at the same time i feel like there's a lot of not necessarily hate but there's a lot of like talking down to by certain people in industries like nutrition. So it's like, if you're not a registered dietitian, don't listen to that person. Or if you're not certified by, I don't know, what's like the most prestigious like PT certification, like personal trainer certification you could get? Uh, Probably NSCA. Yeah. So like if you're not NSCA or if you're not this, like you're not worth listening to. And I find that kind of posturing to be really difficult. And I understand it at certain levels because yes, you want the person who's talking to be qualified, on the other hand, just because somebody has an advanced certification or a specific kind of degree doesn't mean that they're good at what they do or they're not perpetuating harm in what they do. And so I find it's a challenging situation because I'm constantly, as this like kind of anxious part of my personality, this imposter syndrome pops out and is like, well, but Steph, you're not an RD. So like, maybe you're not good enough at what you do, or you're not certified by like this most prestigious fitness certification body. So you're not good enough at what you do. Like you should just get more certifications. You should just learn more. You should just, (laughs) and that's what the voice in my head is constantly saying. And at the end of the day, I know that my one-on-one clients, for example, are making amazing progress and like having these incredible transformations and healing their relationship with food and eating enough for the first time in years. And like their energy is coming back. And like, I know I'm good at helping people. But there's that element of feeling like I don't know enough. And that's different from like the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is <laughs> that that sort of like inverse relationship where it's like when you're a novice, you're like, I know everything. And then when you're experienced at something, you're like, oh, dang, I don't know anything. <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, the part of me that feels like the kind of certifications I have are never good enough or the degree that I have isn't good enough, or I should go back and become like XYZ kind of coach. Continued learning is important to me. I'm always, I've always been a learner. I probably always will. But there's also this element of checking myself about like where that urge is coming from. Is it coming from a place of proving? Is it coming from a place of scarcity? Is it coming from a place of uh, lack of confidence about like what I do and the value that I offer? And so I feel like even though the competition isn't the same as it was like when I was food blogging, where it was like, just get the most amount of page views you can and that kind of stuff. I still feel like there's... it's In some ways, it's easier to carve out this space of like, this is what I do. And I feel really confident about that. But I still have those doubts because I'm like, oh, I don't have that degree or I don't have that certification. Like, If I just got it, would I feel better? Mm, probably not. There would like my imposter syndrome would find another thing to... Tell me that I'm not advanced enough in, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. This more expensive wallpaper, maybe, you know? Yeah. You really, would you really learn more than you know now, or you would just learn it from textbooks and lectures and you already mm-hmm. have it because of this real, real world experience that you've had for the last eight years? Totally. But I think you brought up something really interesting in. You know, we've been through these programs. I went to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. I did a year-long program with them, learned a bazillion different dietary theories. I think they're all kind of crap. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, no shade to anybody who's been to IIN, right? But it's like, once you learn the baseline of what the industry sets as that baseline, then we can start to kind of get into some specializations, right? Like you learn what the industry is teaching the people you will be working with, like calories in, calories out. I'm doing with some air quotes right now. And then you figure out what it actually is like to work with real human beings Mm -hmm. who need different things, who need things to be personalized to them, who need a relationship with the person so that there's honesty and there's truth and there's compassion and, you know, understanding there. And that those are things that you don't learn as you're going through a program and you're reading books and you're taking lectures and you're filling out quizzes. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm with you, and I and I often have the same thoughts. Like, what could I be doing to dig even deeper into this specialization? Because I'm seeing that there are some pockets in this industry that are not being filled, or are just being filled by the loudest person on the mm-hmm. internet who's telling you to eat bananas for every meal of the day. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it, and it's like trying to find your voice with your specialization and also trying to bring some common sense, I think into mm-hmm. the industry. Yeah. Um, would you agree? Oh, hundred percent. There's a very big difference between, and this is even coming from experience as a teacher and experience as a coach and somebody who runs programs and like all sorts of stuff. There's a different, and somebody who's been a learner in these types of programs too, there's a difference between experiential learning and you know, kind of learning the the nuts and bolts, the facts and figures, all that stuff. And both of them have their place. Like, let me, let me just say that, which is why I said earlier, I think, you know, continued education is important. Staying up to date with like how the research is changing is important. And at the same time, how do we learn how to interact with people and how do we learn how to coach people? How do we learn to get, to encourage people to make change by also seeing them as a whole person. How do we respect that? How do we uncover our own biases as providers, coaches, teachers? Yeah. You know, it's um it's very nuanced and very complex and at the end of the day I mean, yes, my clients might come to me because I can help them sort of implement change and I can in- share with them some like technical information and things like that. But at the end of the day, people want to be heard. They want to be met where they are, but also they want to be encouraged to you know, improve a certain thing um, and do it in a way that is... I don't know. For me, I like... I do not subscribe to the school of like shame-based behavior change, which I know is something that some people do. And it still exists online. You know, it's all about how do we help people make change in the way that they really need it for their lives and works for them and meets them where they're at. And so I don't think you can teach that in a nice neat certification or things like that. You can probably learn some of the tools. Like, yeah. for example, when I went through a nutritional therapy program, we learned about motivational interviewing, which I had never heard of before. And I was like, cool, like I try to use that a lot with my clients. You know, mm-hmm. like me the, too. The reflective the listening. I ask a lot of questions and I tell people up front when we work together, you might get frustrated with me sometimes because I'm going to keep asking you questions. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Instead of just giving you all the answers. Right. And ultimately, this is why that's important. And, um, and so, yeah, I think it's, 
I just try to notice when I'm feeling that imposter syndrome of like, you should, like, is it a should or is it a, and I want to like, yeah, I, a couple of years ago, I did the intuitive eating certification and I was like, I really want to learn this. I want to get better at helping people with this and understanding how I can serve my community more deeply. It wasn't like, oh, I feel like I'm getting, I'm being left behind and I should do this so I can prove that I'm worthy. So that's how I notice it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going through body trust right now Mm -hmm. by be nourished the unlearning. It's like the great unlearning of all of the the crap things you've learned throughout your life and learning how to help other people navigate through that too. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm definitely a lifelong learner, just like you're saying for yourself. So the next question that I had for you was, how did you decide that you wanted to go out on your own? So as you were kind of working through this, you're in Scotland, you're learning all these things, you come back, you're figuring out what you're going to do, your blog's going great, you know, you're you're getting all this stuff started. How did you decide to start your own business? And did you have any fears about that and the anxiety about getting that going? Oh yeah, I think how it went was do can I do I think I can do this? Do I think I can figure it out? And it was sort of one of those moments of like having the trust of, I don't have all the answers, but I, I think I can figure it out as I go. And so I, I think I set up my business um, before I left and that's how that went. Commitment. You're like, I put in this letter. (laughs) Basically, set up my business. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's certain things that you can't do. Like you kind of have to set up a a business bank account. Like for me, yeah. I went to the city, city hall, and I set up. You know, this is my at this time. I started with a sole proprietorship because I wasn't really making any money. So the risk of being a sole proprietor because I also didn't have a lot of assets like wasn't as high. So if you're listening to this and you're like, Oh, I don't know what I should be like, definitely talk to your uh, accountant or your, like your tax attorney, like whoever does your stuff varies by state. But for me, like I just tried to go with like the easiest one to start, you know, cause I didn't have, I didn't want to complicate things so much that I felt like it was stopping me. So yeah, I went down to city hall. I signed up like for my business paperwork and then you know opened a bank account and then eventually became once i started generating some income i did become uh, like a business entity in terms of how i would like file my taxes and stuff like that so um i think i just kind of let that that sort of evolve naturally over time and here's just part of my personality i am almost never the early adopter Who's, you know, I think about when the new, any kind of new technology comes out, there's a certain slice of people who are like, give that to me. I want that now. I am like dying to try it. For me, I'm a little bit more hesitant. And I think that goes back to sort of that like more risk averse part of my personality where I'm like, I'm going to hang back and kind of watch and see what happens and then eventually get that thing. Uh, another example would be, I am somebody who typically doesn't buy the most expensive thing right out of the gate. Um, so when I became more interested in food photography and improving my skills there, like I went from a really tiny like point and shoot camera to then I got, you know, kind of a, a DSLR camera, but it was still not the most expensive one. And over the years I upgraded, right? So I'm kind of one of those people that upgrade. 
And I and so I kind of apply that to my business as well in a lot of cases where like sometimes I'll start off smaller and then increase something over time, whether it's spending, you know, money hiring somebody for something. My podcast was another. I started doing the editing myself, then I started working with an editor, and then eventually I started working with a producer. So the time invested for me went down, but the monetary investment to work mm-hmm. with that person went up. And so yeah. I think that's just kind of how I how I applied that to even when I first started my business was like, I don't have to have the most complex or the most expensive thing. I just need to get it going. And I can always change or upgrade over time. And I feel like for me, that helps to sort of reduce the amount of overwhelm that I feel. It just helps me like get the momentum going. I love that you brought that up. And I think it's such a good point. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day and I said, like, nothing you do, no matter how much time and effort and energy and research you put into something, it will never be perfect. You will always launch into that thing, whatever it is, and realize that there are holes that you have to patch or things that you need to change in order to make it the best program that it can be. Um, But we're always evolving. And I love that you said that, like you're, you edited it yourself, you know, and then you got someone to edit it for you and then you got a producer. And I think that this is a really important step that, that we can take, that it doesn't have to be the end product from the get-go. In fact, if, if it is, we'll probably end up messing up more (laughs) somewhere along the way and wasting a whole lot of money, right? So starting Mm -hmm. small and then work it to see what you need next, like with your cameras, But related to this, let's talk, if you don't mind, making a segue kind of into the the programs that we create and the the different programs, different ways to work with us, um, different iterations of our business through time, and how that is also a process of evolution. (laughs) And I hope you don't mind, but off air, you were talking about how you are going to be doing a program in August. Mm -hmm. And I loved your honesty about, I don't exactly know what that's going to look like. I don't know if it's going to be a success. And I can tell you that like, in my gut, <laughs> I relate to this so wholeheartedly. Like I am launching something new today and I feel like barfing. <laughs> <laughs> well, congrats. That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, I've been doing this now since 2010. Mm-hmm. It never, it never gets easier. It gets mm-hmm. more exciting. And I, and I have a sense about things that like, no matter whether or not this fails in the long game, I'm still going to succeed because I'm going to learn something from it. Mm-hmm. But I'm just curious what your process is as you develop things, as you launch them, and how do you handle, if it comes up for you, that anxiety that you feel about putting something together, not knowing if it's going to work? Mm. Yeah, I think one of the one of the maxims that I've kind of learned to live by is... Uh, good and done is better than perfect and not done. So that's one that I think about a lot. Um, Also, you know, doing something scared is okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, having some fear, some apprehension, some reservations about whether it's going to work out exactly how you intend it. I'm also keenly aware that my sort of tendency toward perfectionism um, and my fear of criticism 
in the past have kept me from probably creating programs that were better because I just didn't want to like hear what anyone had to say. So, um, you know, going into something with a bit more open, open mindedness and sort of openness to like receiving feedback about what could be better and sort of like embracing more the, I guess the beta phase of, of launching something and just saying like, we're just going to put it out there and, and sort of treating that as an experiment because I, being a science teacher, a science major, like all this stuff, I really relate to this concept of experimentation mm-hmm. and then refinement. And for a long time, that's not how I approached things. I wanted them to be like perfect out of the gate. I wanted them to just, you know, be the right thing and not have to make any changes to it. And in the past, I can see where that sort of held me back. So yeah, I'm I'm sort of going through this process of shifting my business again um, and sort of niching back down to talking about strength and nutrition, but doing it from kind of a, for lack of a better term, like a not or to kind of say it briefly, a non-diet perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, understanding that even though I have a lot of experience with these things, this offer that I'm putting out is going to be new. And I don't know. I also think about like, while I'm sitting here stewing in my head about it, there's people that I could be helping right now. And, and the degree to which I would want something, I always come back to like, what is the learner need? Like what are, what phase are they in? What, what phase of like, do they want more? Do they want to know the why? Probably, but do they want more of like the how, the implementation, the practical? Likely, just based on my knowing my audience. And I get stuck in the other stuff. So I'm I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> the longer I procrastinate on this, the more I'm not helping people. Like I could be helping people right now. In fact, back in March, I was going to launch this program. I could have been, you know, we could have been done with it. And kind of maybe onto the second round of iteration well by now, but I, I didn't, right? I got I got kind of chicken again about putting it out there and wanting it to be good. And I think there's a there's an element to that too of like practicing not rushing, which is something I'm practicing of like uh, there's a kind of activator in me who wants it all done yesterday and putting things out without really thinking about it or doing it because i feel like i'm you know i'm falling behind or there's scarcity or i'm practicing a little bit more ease with those things mm. but it's about it's it's trying to not an, an exact balance but it's trying to sort of find a way to temper those both of like needing to you know wanting to put it out because this could be helping people right now and i get messages from people all the time who are like i'm struggling with this and also tempering that against my past patterns, which is to just do things really impetuously without having, you know, without thinking things through or thinking of the strategy. And um, that's not my strong point. Strategy isn't my strong point. But at the same time, um, creating something very mindfully. And so I, I guess I'm trying to like find a way to kind of juggle all those those things at the same time. Yeah, and I, I can relate to what you're saying and the difficulty in trying to create something that's worthwhile, that's going to serve the need of your community, while also like trying to let go of some of those like con- 
but speaking for myself, control freak tendencies where I'm just like, I've just got to cling to this like so hard. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be amazing. It's It's got to be fantastic. And kind of just like loosening that mm-hmm. a little bit. And um, I know whatever program you end up coming up with, it's going to be absolutely amazing and that it will evolve with you as it needs yeah. to over time. So yeah, but I, I can relate uh, to this feeling of, you know, what if it's not good enough or what if it's not, you know, what, what people need and getting the feedback, as I'm sure that you do as well, is a thing that helps me move forward. But for anybody who's listening, I was um, teaching a workshop um, last week and someone asked me, well, what if I come up with a program and I'm thinking like 15 people will join it? That's my goal. And only three people join. And my response to them was, you still do it. Mm -hmm. You you only create things that you yourself are willing to commit to. And then you commit to those people who have participated. And then that's the long game. That's how things grow, you know, but for anybody who's listening, who had a launch or is trying to do something and you had less people join than than you thought or that you hoped would join, I think it's still really important to commit and see it through and figure out what could you change or what could you do better? Or maybe it's excellent, but you didn't describe it well from the outside for people looking in. Would you agree? Yes. And I think I have some different perspectives on that to some degree. Um, I think that, you know, everybody wants to grow like their social media, grow their community, grow their presence, like grow, grow, grow. And at the same time, I feel like as you grow, there's more pressure to like do things to a certain, you know, to a certain degree of of excellence slash perfection slash they're going to be in their final form. And I've definitely felt that over the years. Mm. I also feel like they're at some level, like, and and this comes down to like business choices um, and income. Like, if it's something you really want to stand behind, maybe you pause that start date and you try to get more people, and you look back and you see like how can I refine what I was like, you know, where is the gap? Um, Maybe people are signing up to hear more about it, but they're not enrolling. Or maybe like, (laughs) I don't know, maybe your link to to sign up is broken. I mean, there could be a million (laughs) reasons why it's not actually people aren't signing up. But sometimes I think depending on the size of your business and what your needs are, um, sometimes you might have to pause the enrollment date, or maybe you realize that you wanted to start it just the time of year isn't the best fit. So you end up putting a pause on it and leaving your car open for longer. Maybe people need time to find the money. Maybe you decide that if it's a higher, uh, a higher investment level that you want to offer a payment plan and that brings in like 10 more people, or I don't know, I think there's different ways to do it without completely giving up on it. Yeah. But also making it such that if it's just really not going to work and you gave it your best shot, like maybe the offer just isn't the offer to work on. And you, you know, you refund those people and then you pivot and you go back to something else. I think everybody kind of has to decide what yeah. level of engagement is going to work for them. Cause like let's say it's a group program and there's participation. And that's a huge component of your program. And you've got three people. I always think like a quarter of people 
maybe even a third won't come to the calls for whatever reason. They don't like them. They don't, (laughs) the time isn't convenient. You might end up with zero people on a coaching call. And then you're like, well, you know, nobody's getting the benefit from this. So I think you have to kind of think about those factors and the enrollment numbers. I know there's so much pressure to get a certain number of people or to fill a certain number of seats and you know, thinking about it from a more practical point of view rather than, oh, just nobody likes me is a little bit more helpful <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> when all, deciding all how point. to shift. Yeah. yeah, all good points. And I think, you know, for people who are just starting to grow, like right out of the gates, trying to put together a program and not seeing the numbers that maybe they're seeing in some other programs with people who are more experienced, like, if, if the time is going to pass as you develop your program anyway, why not create some sort of a beta program where you can yeah. see it from the inside and, you know, interact with people from within your program? Like, what would you want to see? What do you need? It could be really valuable to helping you get to the place where you have something fantastic. So, totally. yeah, of course, there's going to be times when you're like, whoa, this is a whole lot of time and a whole lot of energy I'm putting into this. Let's go ahead and, and roll it. We'll leave that cart open longer. Totally agree with that. But yeah, but also um, never putting something together that you're not willing to fully commit to, because I feel like that resentment grows from that anxiety grows from that all sorts of things, but yeah, thanks for input. Very, very good. All right. Are you ready for some, (laughs) some quick questions here? I think so. I used to do this on my podcast and now I feel like (laughs) this is being served up to me and I'm like, Oh, now I know why this was, I don't know. I'm like the anticipation. Well, I kind of cheated and gave you your questions like, know. ahead of time, just to be like, <laughs> just in case you're like me and you wanted to know ahead of time, I thought it would be handy. Yeah, it so was. So let, let's say that you are in the middle of anxiety, feeling really mm-hmm. anxious about something. What's your first step? Well, okay. I think this is a part two-part question. The first would be if I'm like on... the computer or the phone or something is to just put that stuff down or in or step away from it. And then secondly would be to just check in with my breathing. Mm. Yeah. If you find that your breathing is not what's best serving you in that moment, do Mm -hmm. you have any particular techniques that you rely on? I just try to slow it down. And then also notice where I'm I primarily breathing from. Is it that like chest, upper shoulders, shallow, you know, more sympathetic type breathing? Or is it more, you know, kind of like relaxed, slower, um, belly, diaphragm type breathing? So I just yeah. try to notice that. So good. Um <clears throat> Now, these can be related to if you're feeling anxious or maybe just some of your favorite things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're welcome to interject whatever you'd like. But what is your favorite song? I was thinking about this all yesterday after I read this question. It depends on what my mood is. I'll say that. So if I'm looking for something to get energized about and I'm like, yeah, I want to, you know, get hyped up, uh, probably Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin because it's just really like 
upbeat and a lot of energy. But my song choice definitely corresponds to my mood. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you have a song in particular that would help you to relax? I think um, I I use <laughs> film score radio on Pandora quite a bit because it's more instrumental. But it's you how know, did I not know about this film score radio? Yeah, so it's all like it's all like the score. So it's no no words, mm-hmm. but scores to popular movies. So things like when when the theme to Lord of the Rings comes on, like <laughs> I'm just like ah, oh, like it's just so calming. Um, or you know, any of the music from The Shire. I'm a, a very big Lord of the Rings nerd. Um, but I love a lot of that music because it's sort of like calming and in the background and things like that. I love that. And I'm totally <laughs> going to check this out now. Yeah, I yeah. I didn't know that this was a thing and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I love it. What is your favorite movie? <sighs> we Recently, we were talking about like, if you could be a character in a film, who would you be? And my answer to that was Mikey from Goonies. Because... <laughs> Mikey was just, he never gave up, you know, he was just so hopeful and was working towards something so pure in his heart. And so, I mean, I just, I'm a child of that, that era. And to me, the Goonies was like so magical and, 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 and kind of pure in a way that I just, um, I just love, like, I always love to watch it. So that's definitely one. Um, but Lord of the Rings would probably be my other one for kind of like big adventure. I love it. Both of these movies are big on adventure. Yeah. 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 That's super cool. Kind of takes you away. I get to adventure with the characters. Mm-hmm. All right. What is your all time favorite food? It could be from like any event, any country, <laughs> any place like that. You're just like, this is the favorite. Yeah, I would say like a uh, juicy steak and potatoes. <laughs> oh, like made at home or any particular place? Yeah, I'm not very picky about it. So I, I think just like a really quality meal, green things optional for that meal would be like really hit the spot. Yes, yes, yeah. All right. Next question. What is something you wish you would have known 10 years ago? <laughs> And if you could go back, is there anything you'd tell yourself? Yeah, I think for me, I was starting to learn more about my own awareness of the world and why I made, like, just what what was driving me to make decisions. And so I think if I could go back, I would definitely just tell myself that like everything will work out in time, you know, um, trying to micromanage and control everything is rarely going to make you feel better in the long run. So I think that definitely that would be something I would tell myself. And what was the second part of the question? I'm sorry. (laughs) I lost it. Is there anything that you would tell yourself? Yeah. I think just like relax. Like it's, it's all going to work. Things will work out. Um, and you don't have to micromanage everything. 
Yeah. Is there any advice that you would give to anyone who's listening, who's just starting their way down this entrepreneurial path? Yeah, I think it's really easy to get caught up in things like my website has to look a certain way. It has to be this. I have to have the right branding. I have to have perfect photos. I have to have the perfect words. At the end of the day, it's about being clear about what you do and how you can help people. And I know a lot of people who are very successful, however we want to define that, which is usually defined by uh, impact and or like how much money am I making mm-hmm. that have very little social media presence that don't use social media at all. Yeah. That don't have a perfect website. Their website hasn't been updated in you know years. Recently, I'm going through a kind of a revamp of my own website and have been that timeline's been taking longer than it was supposed to. And I'm like, you know what? I'm still working with people, you know, still working with clients, still getting clients, still finding the right people to work with. And so I think there's a tendency to want things to look perfect, be perfect before you can put yourself out there. And here's the real kind of secret sauce is that you you refine the message, you refine who you like what you offer, you refine the wording, you are able to, you know, get a sense of like what is the visual aesthetic that you have like all of that can play in, but we make it we make it out to be like the thing that we need to have nailed to perfection before we put ourselves out there. And at the end of the day, why do people want to work with you? It's because they believe that you can help them. Hmm. And some of that stuff might play in on some level to like and maybe at a subconscious level. Um, but if you show up and you see people and you care about what they have to say and you listen and you really think you can help them and you're able to communicate that to them, that's more important than having a perfect website and perfect photography. It's a mic drop moment yeah. right there. <laughs> it's But it's also easy to hide behind that other stuff. Because yeah, you're because you're afraid or you're anxious or you're unsure or you don't feel 100% confident. So we sometimes use that as the reason why we can't take those steps forward. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree that hiding behind per, your perfectionism yeah. until things are all right, it's never going to, in my experience at least, it's, it's never going to be the perfect time. The perfect mm-hmm. time will never present itself to me. Mm-hmm. I have to push forward, even when it's difficult, even when it's embarrassing, even when I'm scared. Yeah. Yeah. And there's people right now that need your help. There are. Yes. Yeah. You listening. There's someone that needs what you have to offer and yeah. only the way that you can provide it. That's for sure. Totally. Speaking of help, <laughs> if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, Steph, for any of your help or to learn more about your books or your podcast, where could they find you and your information online? Yeah. So my website is stephgodrow.com. It's kind of the hub for everything that I do. Uh, you can find links to my podcast there, but my podcast is on all major podcast apps. It's called the Listen to Your Body Podcast. I am most active on social media on Instagram. And so, you know what? If you heard this show and you related to something I said, slide into those DMs of mine, you know, just send a message, say hello. I would love to, you know, that you came from this podcast and uh, something that something that I said maybe really 
was something that you related to or kind of struck a chord or whatever. But yeah, um, you can find most of my content there. You can also find links to what I currently offer. So I do have one-on-one coaching. Currently, there's a wait list for that. So you can find out how to get on that wait list. Um, and then also see where I'm at in terms of launching this group program. <laughs> um, <laughs> currently, there's a wait list for that as well. So if you get on that wait list, I will send you more information as it becomes available. And it's no, you know, you're not like promising that you're going to sign up by joining this waitlist. It's just to get more information. So you can do all of that stuff either on my website or on my LinkedIn profile on Instagram. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been such an honor to have you on The Anxious Entrepreneurs. Thank you so much for your input, for everything that you shared with us today, and just for your presence. It's been such a pleasure and an honor. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Steph. Have a great day. A huge thanks today to Steph Godreau. Thank you so much for your vulnerability, your honesty, for your willingness to talk about your life, the evolution of your career, and all things that you're doing now. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, how much respect for you. And as we said in the episode, I'm willing to be your hype girl anytime. I love what you're doing. Thanks for being here. A big thanks also to Brad Parsons of Train Sound Studio for producing and editing this episode, and to the amazing Camille Bloom for the original music featured in this episode. I hope you all go into the world with strength, bravery, and kindness and make it a fantastic day. Steph invited me to be part of her amazing podcast, the Listen to Your Body podcast. And I wanted so much for you to be able to hear from her right here on The Anxious Entrepreneurs. You can find my episode on the Listen to Your Body podcast next week.